0: All right, well, if you have a uh, Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 59, that's going to be our sermon text today, Psalm 59, and this is our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able to do so, please stand. Psalm 59, give ear to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake and come to meet me and see, you Lord God of hosts or God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Say Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Let uh, Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. "'Consume them till they are no more, "'that they may know that God rules over Jacob "'to the ends of the earth. "'Each evening they come back, "'howling like dogs and prowling about the city. "'They wander about for food and growl "'if they do not get their fill. "'But I will sing of your strength. "'I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, "'for you have been to me a fortress "'and a refuge in the day of my distress.' O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. While the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you have given us... Your scriptures to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path that you have given us these things. You've revealed yourself in your word. You've revealed the way of salvation to us through faith in Christ there as well. And you also revealed to us how you would have us to live and how you would even have us to deal with persecution and suffering and affliction. We ask that you would teach us your word this morning. Work us by your Holy Spirit that we might have uh, eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his glory. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at this uh, another Psalm of David. This is the last Psalm in a section of Psalms, uh, quite a few Psalms in, in in order, one after the other, where David deals with suffering and affliction, and really with persecution of some kind. I think that should be instructive to us. Uh, you know, we 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 look at the Psalms, and sometimes uh, we might mistakenly think that they're all happy Psalms, that they're all Psalms of Of praise and joy and everything's going great but it's not really the case is it and think about the fact of who wrote these psalms David the man after God's own heart the first real king of Israel after Saul the king who ruled uh, for so many years in the the glory days we think of of Israel and yet David suffered many things in his walk with the Lord in in his serving of of his God and he leaves us by the, the grace of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these psalms uh, to instruct us, it's a, it's a, it says it's a masculine of David, and uh, a lot of commentators believe the word masculine meant a psalm of instruction, and so we should look at it as just that. And what does the superscription of the title say that this psalm was about? That Psalm 59 was about. It says there, mm-hmm. when Saul sent men to watch his house, David's house, in order to kill him. That's what this. That's the historical circumstance that David was dealing with when he wrote this psalm or that he wrote this psalm about and that, that account is found in 1st Samuel chapter 19 it's a pretty short passage 1st Samuel 19 verses 11 to 17 it says this Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning so these messengers were think of them as kind of spies they were there to kind of stake out David's house to uh, keep an eye on him and make sure he didn't get away uh, it says, but Michael, David's wife, told him, "If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed." So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, "He's sick." Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, "Bring him to me in the bed." Uh, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. You know, bring him on a gurney if you have to. I'll kill him that way, right? Uh, and when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So she tells she tells a lie, right? But what is she doing? She's She's showing mercy upon her husband David. And you might know who was Michael. It might sound like a strange name for a woman these days, but what, what, who was she in relation to Saul? She was Saul's daughter. And yet at this point, she still rescued and protected her husband uh, in a godly way, and I believe God blessed that. So Saul had sent men, some of his men, to watch over David to keep an eye on him, on him in order that he didn't get away from his grasp because he intended to kill him the next day. But David's wife, again, the daughter of Saul, what does she do? She warns David. Somehow she knew of, maybe her, she heard her father talking about it, and she warned him and said, if you don't leave now, you're, you're not going to get away. You're going to be killed in the morning. So what did she do? She let David down through the window. Sounds like something that happened to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He escaped by being let down from a window. She let him down, and she even did more than that. She didn't just let him escape. She kind of tricked the people who were watching. She, she took an image. It's probably an idol. It's probably a household idol of some kind, a statue of some kind. Put it in the bed and, and put, uh, made it look like it had hair and everything. She put an effigy of David in the bed. Sounds like something on a fierce Bueller's Day Off. Remember when he called in sick and put the mannequin in the bed? Uh, well, that's what she does, and that that bought him more time to escape. And so David once again lived. Now, David narrowly escaped death at the hands of Saul once again. It's almost like you can't keep count of how many times Saul almost had him, that Who did David give the credit for, for his deliverance? Who does David give the credit to, the glory to, for his salvation of his life from the hands of Saul again? His wife, Michael? Not primarily, not ultimately. David looked to his God for deliverance and salvation. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, David writes there, "...deliver me from my enemies, O my God." Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. That's what they were doing. They were lying in wait outside to take him in the morning. They lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready awake. Come to meet me and see. Now look at the words he kind of strings together in verses 1 and 2. He kind of piles words on top of each other in asking God for his protection. Twice he asks God, verses 1 and 2, to deliver him. He asks God to protect him, or maybe more literally to lift him up to a safe place in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he asks God to save him, to save him in verse now those bloodthirsty enemies in verse 2, what were they doing? They were lying in wait to kill him. He calls them fierce or mighty men that were stirring up strife against him. In other words, that had something to do with their words. Maybe these men weren't just lying in wait, but they were accusing him before Saul. They were stoking up Saul's anger against him. And so David had nowhere to go. He had no place of escape. He was a, a, kind of like house arrest. He was, a, he was trapped in his own home. And so what did David do? It sounds simple, and, but yet we often fail to do it at first. David prayed. Now, we don't read about David's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 19, do we? But David, we know from the psalm, prayed. As great as his enemies were, they were no match for his God. Notice there in verse 1, he says, My enemies, and then what does he say? My God. He's he's comparing his enemies as great as they were and then he thinks about them in comparison to God and that makes all the difference. That should be an example, an instruction for you and I, for the godly, whenever you suffer persecution of any kind that although we might be tempted to fear and despair when we consider our enemies who very often are much greater than us, uh, they will be seen in their proper perspective when they are viewed in the light of our God who is infinitely greater than they are. It's always... The scriptures seem to teach us over and over again. The fear of God drives out the fear of man. We often have reason to fear man until we keep God in the picture and consider them uh, in light of of who he is and what he can do on our behalf as our God. Notice that David implores God at least partially in a sense on the basis of his own innocence. I, I think sometimes that might make us a little uncomfortable. We might... A lot of things in this psalm might make us uncomfortable. We're going to see that David prays a prayer of imprecation. It's not the first time we've seen David do that, where he prays for God to judge his enemies. But he also does so on the basis of of his own innocence, which David wasn't sinless, but he does pray this way, and he sets us an example in doing that. In verses 3 to 4, look what he says. He says uh, that his enemies were doing all these things against him, quote, for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. I mean, they're trying to kill him. And David says, not my transgression, not my sin, not my fault. What's he saying there? Why is he bringing up his own innocence? Is David claiming to be sinless before God? Is that what he's saying here? Is David just being silly and foolish and, and dishonest? Is he saying, God, you know I've never sinned. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not claiming to be sinless before God. Far, far from it. We have at least two psalms, uh, Psalm 32 and Psalm uh Fifty-one, where David confesses his great sin before God. Uh, at one point in the in the Psalter, uh, what he is doing there is he's saying that uh, even though he knows he was a sinner and his salvation is entirely due to the steadfast love or grace of God, he mentions the steadfast grace or love of God three times in this Psalm. It's another way of saying grace. David wasn't saying that God was his God and God saved him because he was such a good man he knew better than that. But what he is saying is that his hands. Were clean from transgression against his enemies. He's saying, "I did not bring this upon myself," and I think that's an important distinction to make. He didn't bring, he didn't do anything to bring the malice and violence of his enemies upon himself. Matthew Henry writes. He says, "Though our innocence or innocency will not secure us from troubles." In other words, David hadn't done anything, but it didn't stop them from persecuting him, did it? Doesn't mean you will be free from trouble. He says, though our innocency will not secure us from troubles, yet it will greatly support and comfort us under our troubles. The testimony of our conscience for us that we have well we have behaved ourselves well toward those who have who behave themselves ill towards us will be very much our rejoicing in the day of evil. So a clear conscience will serve to give God's people good and great confidence in prayer, even in the midst of the worst of times. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.8 says this, that he willed that, quote, "...in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling." Of course he tells us to pray over and over again, but he says he wants, he wants men to, to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why does he say that? Why does he mention holy hands when he talks about praying? Unclean hands are an impediment to our prayers. Not imperfect hands. We all have, nobody would pray if that were the case. But he's saying holy hands. Uh, So unclean hands are an impediment to our prayers. They hinder our prayers. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 15 to 17. Listen to what the Lord says to his people Israel. He says, when you spread out your hands, what's he talking about? He's talking about worship and prayer. The people kind of, you know, raise their hands to God in prayer. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. You know, it, sometimes we think that, that the hypocrites, the people that go through the motions and yet live wicked lives, we think, oh, they must never pray. He doesn't say that at all. He says they made many prayers. Maybe it was a prayer for show, like the Pharisees did in the New Testament. But he says, even though, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. He doesn't say don't pray. He says repent. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Same thing in the Old and the New Testament alike. Holy hands are hands that can be spread out in prayer to God with confidence in His gracious willingness to hear And to answer, hypocrisy, going through the motions while living a life of wickedness, that's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is not you struggling with sin. Christians who sin, that is not hypocrisy. Otherwise, we're all hypocrites by that definition. It's, it's Christian, it's Christian people that call themselves Christian but live as if they weren't. They live a life completely devoid of, of godliness. That is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the surest way to having God hide His eyes from our prayers and ensuring that even if we make many prayers, as he told the people in Isaiah's day, he won't listen. Well, now David turns our attention to, to this description of his enemies. He describes the wrath, the evil of his enemies. And notice uh, that we see here in this psalm that some of the worst persecutions that, that the children of God go through are often the, word, the result of words. You know, we always tell our kids, you know, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, Scripture doesn't really seem to back that up, does it? It's true as far as it goes, but the words that people spoke is what lays lays behind much of the evil that David was enduring. For this reason, David goes on to compare his enemies to dogs. To dogs who were going about the city streets. Verse 6, howling and bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips. Very unflattering description. Now, David repeats that same refrain almost word for word towards the end of the psalm in verses 14 to 15. So he describes them twice the same way. He says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Now, to be compared to a dog or to be called a dog, I don't think it's ever been a compliment. Uh, it certainly wasn't in, in David's day. Now, he didn't have in, in his mind the cute little fluffy family dog. He didn't have a black lab in mind, the dog that sits there smiling at you and and behaving well and, and playing with the kids. He's talking about those wild dogs, street dogs, the kind that roam the street at night, the kind that if you saw them you wouldn't want to get out of your car, the kind that if you saw them you would hope they didn't see you, you wouldn't cross the street to get anywhere near them. They were dangerous, they were violent, they were voracious. They're not the kind of dogs... You want to see that's what he compares these men to. Add that to the fact that in verses 5 and verse 8, this might seem strange to you, but he refers to them as all the nations. Kind of an odd, odd way to describe them. So they're dogs, they're nations, and he asks God to punish them and hold them in derision. Why does David call them all the nations? It's an odd thing to call his enemies. Why does he say that? The Hebrew word there is goyim, which has the idea of a Gentile or a pagan nation. A foreign, pagan nation. Those who were strangers to God and were unclean. Now, who were the people in this particular incident? Who were these people that were persecuting David? David's persecutors here in this psalm, were they Gentiles? Was Saul a Gentile? No, Saul was of the tribe of, I believe, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, his persecutors were mostly, primarily, those from within Israel, just like Saul himself was. So what's he saying about them here? Why does he call them the nations or the Gentiles? He's speaking of them as if they were not members of Israel at all, as if they were strangers to the covenant people of God. In other words, they may be Jews outwardly, uh, but inwardly they were strangers to God. He's saying they're Jews, but they're not Jews. They may be children of Abraham by according to the flesh, but they're not really children of Abraham according to to the spirit and to faith. Now Paul says something very similar in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. He said, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. In other words, who is Israel? When he says not all are of Israel, he's talking about Jacob. Israel is another word for Jacob, right? Uh, prince with God is what Israel uh, means. And he says, not all who are descended from Israel or Jacob belong to Israel or Jacob. And then he goes back a couple generations further than that. Abraham, the, the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful, he says, not all are children of Abraham because they were his offspring, because it's through Isaac that your, your offspring shall be named. In other words, it's not just about physical genealogy, biological genealogy that no one gets in by their genealogy unless it's a genealogy of, of faith and one doesn't have to look any further than in the new testament the scribes and pharisees in jesus day just like it was mainly ethnic jews that were unbelieving that persecuted david back in the old testament uh, so also in a much similar way uh, those who persecuted christ in the gospels are primarily the pharisees the scribes the members of of the Sanhedrin who conspired to murder Jesus Christ the Messiah, they were Jews by birth, but were not born again, and so they were not true children of Abraham according to the promise. They, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an insult among insults. David is saying they're dogs. These men think they're Jews. They think they're members of the covenant. They're dogs. They're street dogs, and they're, they're pagan Gentiles, and they show that by their actions and by their persecuting of God's anointed king, just like they would do so to God's greater son of David later in the New Testament. Look at verses 8 through 10. David just doesn't play, pray for deliverance. He also confesses his faith and confidence in his God. He says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. Sounds like Psalm 2, right? God laughs. You, know. you O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations. There it is again. All the nations in derision, O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. They were watching for him. He was going to watch for God. He was going to watch for God and what God was going to do to deliver him. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. His house was a prison. His house wasn't his, his, his fortress. What does he say? I might be in house arrest right now. I may have nowhere to go that I can possibly imagine, but God... He says, Oh my, Oh God, you are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will, will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Outwardly, did it look to David in any way, shape or form that he was going to look in triumph on his enemies? He probably was sitting there thinking, I don't know what God's going to do. I know I can't do anything, but God's going to do something. David's home was a trap. At that time, it offered no shelter or hope of escape, and yet he hid himself in his God, and God was his fortress. He purposed to wait for God, who was his strength. He didn't have any strength over his enemies, but God was his strength. And he trusted in the steadfast love of God. That's God's covenant love, his gracious love towards David, and his faithfulness to protect him in time of distress. Well, now we look at a part of the psalm that might make you more uncomfortable than David's Uh, confession of his innocence before his enemies, and that's this prayer of imprecation. A lot of this psalm is a prayer of imprecation. That's where It's a prayer for God to judge the wicked, to judge the enemies of his people, especially those who persecute his church. Now, these kinds of prayers, I think, can have a tendency to make some of us uncomfortable. Sincere believers often find these things uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with them. We don't know where to put them on the shelf, so to speak. Some even go so far as to say that those kind of prayers that we find in the Psalms, in a lot of the Psalms, people will sometimes say that these kinds of prayers do not belong on the lips of God's people in the New Testament age. Now, I will say uh, in response to that, that such prayers as these aren't just found in the Psalms, are they? They're also found in the New Testament. They're found in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out, they're in heaven, this is a vision, but they're in heaven in this vision. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, we don't know how much of this is, you know, just the vision teaching us something, but it's a picture of the saints, the martyrs in heaven, and they're not saying, ah, no big deal, they're saying, Lord... (coughs) How long before you judge them who shed the blood of your people? And it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Again, God, you know, God doesn't tell these, these saints, these martyrs in Revelation. He doesn't say, Oh, no, no, you got this all wrong. We, We don't, that's not how things work. We don't do that. He tells them to wait. It's coming. Read the whole book of Revelation, God will judge the wicked. He will judge the enemies of his people, but he tells them to wait. It's coming, but not yet. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul prays something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. He's writing to Timothy, his protege pastor, his apprentice pastor in the faith, and where he's telling him, you know, how to do things and how to how to work do the work of ministry in the church, and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, the King James Version, I believe, renders this a little more clearly as a prayer or request. It renders it this way. The Lord reward him according to his works. He's not just saying, you know, God will judge him. He's saying, he's praying, you know, let let God judge this man according to his deeds. There's a prayer you don't ever want to have prayed against you that God would judge you according to your deeds but Paul was able to pray that and why because he strongly opposed our message what message was that the gospel those who would hinder the gospel are hindering the work of God and the salvation of sinners now David is not here praying selfishly maybe that's why it makes us uncomfortable we think I don't know if I could pray a prayer like that Pastor David you know that's David David can do what David wants David was the king uh, David was the man after God's own heart. I don't trust myself to pray that kind of a prayer, and that might be a good thing to say. But David's not praying selfishly. David's not even praying vengefully. We, we might think of it as that, as David praying vengefully. Uh, remember, again, these prayers, David doesn't take matters into his own hands. David was a skilled man of war. David didn't run out the front door of the house, sword of blazing, and kill these men. He looked to God for deliverance, and he prayed for that. What was David's chief purpose in this prayer of imprecation against his enemies? It was the glory of the name of God. And that makes all the difference. When you you think about praying this kind of a prayer against the enemies of God's people, whether it be here or places like North Korea or China or someplace where the people of God are persecuted and killed, if the chief purpose of your prayer is the good of God's people and the glory of God's name, I think you're on safe Look at verses 11 to 13 where David gives us the reason, the motivation behind his prayer. He says kill them not lest my people forget make them totter by your power and bring them down O Lord our shield for the sin of their mouths the words of their lips let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter consume them in wrath consume them till they are no more and here it is that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. What's he remember, remember what he called them all the nations they were jewish they weren't believing and they were persecuting god's king and he called them nations or gentiles or Goim. well now he says that they might know that god rules over jacob god rules over israel god rules over his church for their good to the ends of the earth he prays that god might even consume his enemies in his wrath But the purpose was that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. He wanted the wicked to learn and know, without a doubt, that God still rules. That God still, and not just that God's in charge. They probably wouldn't have ever denied that. If you had asked his enemies, does God rule over all things? They probably would have said, certainly. But when he says that God might rule over Jacob, or that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, what he's saying is God watches over his people. That God will not allow the apple of his eye to be touched with impunity forever. That he will judge and defend his people. When the wicked seem to go on and on and on, unchecked, unpunished, and seemingly sinning and persecuting God's people with impunity, the people begin to think and imagine that maybe God doesn't really rule after all. And worse yet, maybe he doesn't watch over his people. And so David's praying for the good of his people, that God's people might might be reminded that God is watching over us, that God is our refuge and our strength, that very a very present help in time of trouble. That's an amazing phrase that that the psalmist used back in Psalm forty six. Not just present, not just a present help. Yeah, God's kind of around the corner, sort of listening. He's a very present help in time of trouble. The Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God right now, ruling over all things. For our good, defending his church and gathering them as well, Paul says the, the very same thing in ephesians one twenty two to twenty three he says he has put all things under his feet, the feet of Christ, the ascended the crucified risen and ascended Christ, he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in you know, all what's he saying he's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ rules and watches over his people to gather and defend them. He he has given him as head over all things to the church or for the church. He's reigning at the right hand of God for your benefit and mine. For the saints all over the world no matter where they may be the suffering and persecuted church in different parts of the world, Jesus is ruling over all things for their benefit and he will in his good timing judge his enemies and the enemies of his people. That they may know that He rules over all things for Jacob. Well, the last thing we see in our Psalm is David's praise to the God of His salvation. It's how he ends the Psalm in verses sixteen to seventeen. You know, you think about this, when you when you think about the fact, when you when you remind yourself from Scripture that God is that Jesus Christ is ruling over all things for you. He is He is watching over you at all times. He never leaves us or forsakes us, Hebrews thirteen five. And that he will even judge the enemies of his people in due time uh, that gives us ample reason to praise and it gave David great cause for praise in those last two verses he says "He says, but I will sing of your strength I will sing aloud of your steadfast love not just talk about it David's like my my life's under threat of death right now but you know what I'm going to sing I have cause to sing I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning think about it in the morning was when he was supposed to die David's like guess what I'm going to sing in the morning For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. In other words, he's saying, in the past, God has always watched over me. And God's going to watch over me now. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Three times, he says, I will sing. I will sing praise to God. The dogs, verses 14 to 15, they may howl, they may prowl, they may growl all night. But the saints will still sing. Let the dogs howl at the moon all they want. We still have cause to sing. We have abundant cause for praise of, of our God, even in times of trouble and distress. You and I can sing of God's strength, as David did. We can sing of his steadfast love, for God has been our fortress and our refuge in the day of distress. He himself, not our own strength, he is our strength. He, is, he alone is our strength, our fortress, and he is our God who shows us his steadfast love in Jesus Christ Paul writes in Romans 8:31 a very familiar verse to most of you if God is for us how does he end it who can be against us well he's not saying you won't have enemies he's not saying God's people won't suffer persecution he's saying they have no hope of winning if God is for us who can possibly be against us as David said God's going to let him look in triumph on his enemies and what does Paul say later in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors despite the persecutions more than conquerors through him who loved us. So David doesn't attribute his deliverance to his wife, Michael, but rather praises his God who delivered him by means of her help and deception. Did God use David's wife? Certainly. And there's some irony there that she used an idol, you know, a carved image, something God would disapprove of, but God still let her use that to rescue David. There might be some irony there. They were looking for David, what did they find? These, these Gentiles by heart, these Gentiles by heart that were Jewish came and saw, they found, they were looking for David, they found an idol. Here's what you really want. Here's what you really have at heart, not David, but this, this statue. William Plummer, a great commentator writes this, whatsoever, whatever means we adopt for our preservation, and however successful they may be, God, is the sole author of deliverance, and we ought to pray and praise and preach accordingly. That's what David does here. David doesn't say, "Hey, you know what? I came up with the greatest plan, and I had my wife lower me down through a rope, and you know, I'll pray later." He praises God. God was the one who gave him uh, his his protection. God was the one who delivered him, and so to God alone be the glory. Amen. Let's let's pray. O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise, for you have shown your steadfast love to us. Uh, Even as Paul says, uh, when he says, we are more than conquerors, and how? Through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors over all the enemies of your people, not in our own strength, nothing of the sort, but because Jesus Christ, your, your Son, our Lord, laid down his life for our sins, loved us, and gave himself for us, that we might be forgiven of our sins and made right with you. We thank you for your steadfast love over us. We thank you that you rule over all things uh, for Jacob, for your church, even now. Sometimes it doesn't look like that to us, Lord, when we suffer persecution, and yet the, the scriptures say that we're called to this, that because Jesus Christ suffered in our place, leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps, in that regard, Lord, if they persecuted him, they will certainly persecute us, if they hate our Master, they will hate those who follow Him as well. And Lord, we ask that You would give us a, renew our minds, give us grace to understand these things better. Help us to see how You rule over all things for Your church. Help that uh, give us grace to to pray according to that, to, to to be able to let that fuel our praying for Your people around the world who are suffering much more worse things than we even are in our land. Uh, Lord, we pray for the persecuted church. All over the world, we thank you that you are ruling over all things, even for them, uh, and that one day you will let the, you will let uh, them them and all of your church trample Satan under our feet. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.